Hi, I'm Lou Eisen, boxing writer and historian. And we, today we have on our show, Ring Talk, one of my favorite authors and people in the world, Arne K. Lang, who wrote this book. And this is this is my favorite book that I've ever read. Um, not just boxing book, book book. And the Nelson Wolgast fight, ad, uh, battling Nelson Ad Wolgast, and the San Francisco boxing scene, 1900 to 1914. Arnie's books sell out incredibly quickly. So whenever you see them on the internet or in a bookstore, you grab them. Because if you see it on a bookstore and you think, I'll go get a coffee and come back, it'll be gone. So whenever you see a book with Arnie K. Lang on it, you buy it immediately. You do not wait. This also goes for online. When you see his books online, you grab it immediately. Because if you don't, you come back 20 minutes later, it'll say sold out. So this is a magnificent book. It's a great snapshot of American and world history in that time period and of the great uh, Adwell Gast and Bally Nelson. And I'm so pleased and happy and privileged to be able to welcome Arnie K. Lang, one of boxing, one of the world's premier writers to our show today on Ring Talk. Welcome. Uh, thank you. You've been very generous, <laughs> but I appreciate your kind remarks. Uh, uh, I don't know okay. if I would have said it exactly that way. I think... Uh, you know, but but anyway, I appreciate those remarks. Well, thank you. I, I think they're very well deserved. You're extremely well respected, admired, and liked. And I got to tell you, uh, the Nelson Wolgast book was such a fantastic book and is such a fantastic book. And you include so many characters in there, important figures, not just in boxing, but in, in, in world history, such as Tex Rickard, and and Joe Gans and Nelson and Wolgast and I, I I always wanted to ask you I mean boxing back then Wolgast and Nelson were dirty fighters and they had fought once before it, it seemed almost like Nelson he was prepared but he wasn't prepared for the dirtiness of of how Wolgast Wolgast fought um, what wasn't Nelson aware that he was fighting somebody as dirty as him and who was a significant threat or did he really dismiss him? Uh, I believe that Nelson was so egotistical that he took this fight rather lightly, even though even though their first encounter in Los Angeles, a 10 rounder, even though Wolgast got the better of that fight. Um, Nelson, if you if Nelson was a racehorse, <laughs> we would say he was a distant horse, a distance horse. He wasn't a sprinter. And uh, he seemed to get stronger as the fight progressed. This particular fight uh, was slated for 45 rounds, 45 three-minute rounds. And that uh, theoretically played into Nelson's hands because he was noted for getting stronger as the fight progressed. And he thought the longer distance uh, uh, made it plain that he was going to get avenge, uh, was going to avenge that first loss to Wolgast. Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting when I when when I read in your book about Nelson and what I've read about Nelson, I mean, he got a lot of he had a lot of things going his way. For instance, when he fought Gans, Gans had to weigh in right before the fight, which wasn't uncommon for a long time in boxing, but Nelson didn't right. have to. And for the yes. money, I, for for the Wolgas fight, Nelson got over twelve grand, and Wolgas got. Well, gas got like something like four grand. Why was there such a disparity in the pay? Uh, it well, the disparity was racial, and of course, that's been going on in boxing for years. Yeah. Uh, Nelson was the draw. Gans 
the better fighter. Nelson was the draw. He was more about, uh, had a, you know, people wanted to more about battling Nelson, Joe Gans. And the fact that he was Caucasian, let's be honest, that, and the fact that Nelson got certain concerns that weren't given Joe Gans. Uh, by the yeah, way, we should mention the court three times, uh, 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 and those, uh, the, Everyone who follows boxing, who knows the history of boxing, knows the, uh, that their fight in Goldfield, Nevada in 1906 um, w was the important one, the one that got all the news, um, the one that would, you know, that's more talked about even today. But uh, and in that fight, Nelson was disqualified in the 42nd round. Um, but Nelson won the second and third meetings. Uh, both times, Gans was compromised. Uh, he would die of pneumonia at a very young age. He wasn't physically fit. But uh, so Nelson was two to one uh, in their three-fight series with Joe Gans uh, when he took the ring against Dad Wolgast. Yeah, and and I know Nelson coming as a champion gets more money than Wolgast, but it just seemed he always got these favors done for him. And I, I was wondering, you know, for instance, if the Gans fight, why didn't why didn't Hereford, why didn't Gans manager stand up and say, no, he doesn't have to, to weigh in right before the fight. He can weigh in another time, but he didn't. He, he, Hereford, who I think was a, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, was a bigot, just, he didn't. He, he didn't stand up for Gans at all in any way. I don't, well, Al Hereford is a reference here. He was a Baltimore fight manager and promoter and a very important man in the sport, very influential, but he was not with Gans, if memory serves, in Goldfield, Nevada in 1906. Okay. So Nelson did not, I mean, uh, Joe Gans did not have, have him as the, the cushion. Uh, but, uh, you know, as good as Gans was, uh, the, the fact that he was a black man and, and had to fight a lot to keep the uh, the money coming in I, it was hard for him to you cut out for a second Arn. i don't know if you can still hear me but you cut out there so uh what do we do eric should i call him okay well we're talking here with uh arnie oh there you are you're back okay great Okay. Yeah, I think we might have missed something at the end there. But, uh, you know, sometimes a, a, a fighter is forced to take the short end of the purse. Mm -hmm. You were freezing on the screen there, Ar Arnie. Excuse me. So you're saying a fighter is forced to take the short end of a purse, which is common in boxing because, you know, Jack Johnson did that with, with uh, Tommy Burns just to get into the fight. Right, just to get a shot at the title, he had to take almost nothing. That's correct. I can see. Uh, Great. Well, that that's good and not good. <laughs> but but um, uh, uh, well, I'm, no, I'm glad you can see me. I'm just saying not good because of my looks. But the the other thing I is, you know I found interesting in in the book. So the voice is quite diffused, Ernie. Your your face is frozen there. 
Can you just refresh it again? Please refresh it again. I don't know if I came So he's going to try to refresh it. It may also be where he's situated, Eric, right? Or is that just a, this is just a technical thing? Eric is our producer, but I'm not hearing him. So, um, oh, it could be his internet connection too, de depending where he is. And, and people out there know that, that, you know, We've all had those internet phones, those cell phones where you're sitting beside a person and you can't get a connection. So uh, it's probably his connection. So um, um, uh, we'll just wait for Arnie to refresh that. Um, Arnie has another book out about, about the fight between the Candace George Dixon and terrible Terry McGovern. You know, Terry McGovern, and we had Jason Winders on. And Jason Winder's book on George Dixon is a must-have for any boxing fan and for every boxing fan all over this planet. But Terrell Terry McGovern is a guy that's forgotten, and that breaks my heart because it's criminal that he's forgotten. He he was he was Mike Tyson at a lighter weight. He was an elemental force in nature. When that bell rang, there were no niceties, there were no feeling outs rounds. McGovern just came out to kill you. That's what he wanted to do. He wasn't looking to knock you out, cut you, close your eye. He wanted to take your life. And he fought every round as if, you know, you owed him money or you had assaulted his sister or insulted his mother. That was Terry McGovern. And when you got in the ring with him, you better be prepared to go to war because if you weren't, the fight would end quickly. And he destroyed a lot of great fighters. So he's somebody that is well worth looking up. I think Nat Fleischer had a book out on Terry McGovern. But the problem was, of course, Fleischer's coverage of these fighters, and he saw a lot of them, is covered or colored, excuse me, by his own personal experiences. So a lot of the stuff, like in his book, The Three Colored Aces, about black fighters, a lot of it's racist and a lot of it's just made up. You know, Fleischer knew nothing about George Dixon and said Dixon had a white father who was a British um, uh, naval officer who, who impregnated uh, a slave, uh, but that's simply not true. Both of George Dixon's parents were black, and I and Jason Winders especially has have the has the birth certificates to prove it, and that they were married in Africville in in uh, outside Halifax, and that he was raised along with his siblings in Halifax. There are no white descendants in his family that we that I could trace certainly Jason went back 100 well over 100 150 200 years in Dixon's family and couldn't find any white descendants so this was all made up by by Nat Fleischer and you know a lot of times when they didn't know about a battling Nelson you know or an ad Wolgaff the fighters themselves would make up these false narratives for their uh personal history and then later on you had to find out that 
a lot of it, you know, wasn't true. There are a lot of fighters who claimed I did this and I did that. And I, you know, came from a broken family and, and I had 15 siblings and I was originally born in Yugoslavia. And then I had to swim my way over to the United States. And, and you find all that, that no, born in Ohio, had one sibling and grew up in a medium, you know, well-off family. So it, it, it fits into the boxing narrative when a person uh, is able to, you know, uh, make their make their background seem worse than it was. A lot of times it was bad, but if they make it seem worse than it was, then they've overcome more to actually get to the title. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give Arnie a call and see. Um, okay. Oh, hi. Okay. No problem. Should we wait till your son gets back and then do it then? Right. Okay. Whatever time. It doesn't have to be a Sunday. It could be any time that's good for you. No, no, no. No, you don't need to apologize to me, buddy. It's just a, it's a privilege just to be able to see you and to speak with you. And 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 we will do it again as soon as possible. Okay, that's fantastic. Call anytime. You be well. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. So Eric, do we what do we do? Do we start over? Eric, I'm gonna need to hear from you. Arn is is can't get back online, so he's gonna do it. We're gonna do it again when his son's home and can set it all up. So what should we do now? I can keep talking if you want. Okay. But we can't we 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 can't air this one, obviously. Correct? Okay, thank you. And should you want me just to do one right now? I can talk about a, a recent fight. Because I got a million things going on in my head. Um we'll play rewatching. I'm not sure what that means. I'm going to have to hear your voice. Oh, people are watching now. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry to all you people that are watching. Arn K. Lang, we're having technical difficulties, so we're going to redo it. 
Uh, all this information with me talking to Arne, that will all be edited out. We'll take this down. We'll have a fresh one with Arne K. Lang. And what I will do now with Eric's indulgence, uh, I guess I'll talk to you about my book. And, uh, and we can also talk about this great book too. So uh, boxing podcasters like myself, boxing historians, and writers are, are people that are historians first and fell in love with boxing. And my book, um, I had to let go of one publisher this week and I'm looking at several others. And my book essentially is, is called um, Boxing's Greatest Controversies, Blood, uh, Blunders, Blood Feuds, and Mob Connections. Now, I didn't know whether to call it Mob Connections or Mob Corruption. So my book covers fights from 1772 and, and that was the first fight, May 10th, not the first fight. First fights in boxing took place 1697, 1698, in what today you and I would call boxing, that we would recognize if we looked at it. We're, we're two men, we're in a ring with just their fists and a little bit of padding, actually usually bare knuckles, but maybe some tape or, or thin leather padding. They called them mufflers then, and they would fight. And what happened was back then, in the very early 1700s, fighters would... Uh, it sustained terrible injuries. And, you know, in, in 1910, when Ad fought battling Nelson, they didn't have mouthpieces then. This, that didn't come into the 1920s with Ted Kidd Lewis, the welterweight champion from Britain. And, you know, so these guys had their lips shredded. They had their tongue split numerous times, teeth knocked out. So they took horrible beatings and were swallowing their own blood. Back in the 1700s, it was worse because... Some guys often died, you know, after taking a, a, a feral beating in the ring from a man who was far superior. And back then, the, there weren't a Marcus of Queensbury rules. So you could put a guy in a headlock and then do a, a, a hip flip, put him on the ground. You could pull his hair. You know, you could do all sorts of things. And then around 18, 1833, uh, the rules came in, uh, John Broughton's rules, and... You know, he didn't want people to be killed. He wanted to clean it up. And so they had three-minute rounds, one-minute rest, and you had to get to the rubber. You had to tow the rubber in 30 seconds. So that means if you got knocked down, whenever you got knocked down, then the round was over. And you had 30 seconds. And then by 1838, they revised the rules, and you had 38 seconds to get to the rubber in the center of the ring. The problem with that was, of course, is that so many fighters, if they got hurt, they would go down deliberately and then the round ends or if you cut someone the round ends and they had to institute a rule that if you went down deliberately just to save yourself and catch your breath you could be disqualified so that's the first chapter so we know the fight between william darts billy darts and peter cochran was fixed may 10th 18 1772 at epson downs racetrack because it was the first one where contemporary reports proved that it was fixed both boxers later revealed that it was fixed. Uh, um, a gambler uh, named O'Kelly was the one who fixed it. And Darts, who was heavily favored, got 100 pounds more to lose. And he lost in the first minute. Basically, the fight started. Cochran came out, put him in a headlock, uh, walked to the ring post in slow motion, hit his head on it. Darts head. Darts went down and didn't get up. The fans in attendance back then knew it was fixed and we're starting to riot. By the way, back then, fans didn't pay money to get in. That's not how boxers got paid. Boxers got paid by passing the hat. 
fans came to the fight to watch the fight. And boxers had to get backers to sponsor them for side bets and to put up money that, you know, we'll pay you, your guy if he beats my guy this amount of money and you'll pay my guy this amount of money if he wins. And so in a fixed fight, all bets are off. But guys who would bet on darts because darts was the far superior boxer and lost, they didn't want to pay. But they had no choice to pay. In fact, going to a prize fight back then was very dangerous because there were pickpockets and thieves and all sorts of people. Fans often got robbed and hurt on the way to and from a fight. And fights basically were for the commoner. But a lot of times there were various kings, King George, other kings that were at the fight. They they enjoyed boxing. Boxing was banned there in the United States throughout the 1800s. But, you know, same with prohibition. You can't keep it away from people that want to see it. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm apolitical. I don't like any political party anywhere. So hopefully that satisfies, that satisfies everyone. But it was smart when Canada, I thought, legalized pot because it had been outlawed here for over 100 years. But why not just legalize it and make money off of it? That's I'm not taking a pro-drug stance. What I'm saying is boxing fell into the same category as that boxer, boxing was illegal for a long time. So... We know from my friend Tony G, he's very ill, the premier bare knuckle boxing historian in Britain, that fighters uh, like Jack Slack, who was Jack Broughton's son-in-law, often threw fights. And they're pretty sure, but there's really no contemporary reports. And when I say contemporary reports, I mean my friend Tony G went to newspapers of the day. And in those newspapers, uh, they gave reports that, you know, so-and-so spoke to this person, and I've got information that the fight was definitely not on the level. The problem with boxing then in the 1700s uh, is that in the middle to late 1800s, you had Pierce Egan with uh, Pugilistic and Boxiana uh, by ha Henry Miles Downs uh, was giving a history, 10, 15-volume history of boxing, both men did. And most of what they wrote was incorrect. It was third and fourth hand knowledge attained 40, 50 years after the fight. So most of what you read in their books, and people look at their books and they say, wow, this is a keepsake. Yes, written 200 years ago. So it's interesting to have, but none of what's in those books is factual at all in any way, shape or form. Also, so that's the first fight I cover in my book. The last fight I cover is the fight that took place uh, I guess in the early 2000s, between uh, Magomed Abdusalamov and Mike, Irish Mike Perez, who was a Cuban heavyweight. And Perez uh, um, left Cuba, settled in Ireland, and he fought Abdusalamov, who, who was uh, a boxer from K2 Promotions, the Klitschko's Promotions, run by Tom Loeffler. And Abdusalamov was being pushed way too quick. He was a big man, 6'3", 220 pounds, but he was a limited fighter. And you could tell there was trouble in the air when he fought Jimmy L. McClain, the fading American heavyweight, and McClain dropped him with a straight right hand. Straight right hand's a sucker punch. You're throwing it across your body and it's telegraphing it. The other guy can see it. So you're saying, I know you can see it, but you have no skill, so there's nothing you can do about it. And he dropped him. And of course, McCline, who was not in great shape, uh, lost several rounds later. But he really hurt him. And in that, and when he hurt Abdusalamov, 
a lot of people in boxing at the time said that this is a clear sign that this guy is far from ready. Mike Perez was from the vaunted Cuban system, and he'd beaten a lot of very good Cuban fighters. And to put him in against a guy like Abdus Salawan was too much too soon for the big Russian. So Abdus Salamov, what happened there was he took a beating for 10 rounds. After the second round, he came back to his corner. These are all chapters in my book. And he said to his trainer or to the interpreter, because he didn't speak English, John David Jackson was his trainer, former world champion. But he said to his interpreter, I can't feel the left side of my face. I can't see out of my left eye. Is it swollen? You're fine. You're fine. But I can't feel anything. That that That's in, indicative of a traumatic brain injury. And he kept fighting. His face became grotesque, grotesquely swollen. After the fourth or fifth round, Roy Jones, who was part of the great HBO broadcast crew, said, this is the kind of a fight that where a fighter gets catastrophic damage, usually dies, but if he doesn't die, his life is destroyed. This fight should be stopped. And the referee, Benji Estevez Jr., and as I said at the time when I was talking about this on radio, I'm not thrilled with Benji Estevez Sr. either, uh, doesn't need any reason to go to the corner. And he didn't. He went once peremptorily for three seconds. Hey, everything all right? Great. And then that was it. The ringside doctors don't need permission from the referee or anyone. They were neurosurgeons. They could have gone up, examined him, and saw that he, he the fight should be stopped. They didn't. The fight kept going on. Abdus Solomov kept complaining. Before the fight, John David Jackson complained to the managers of Abdus Solomov that he said, you shouldn't. You shouldn't let him fight this guy. This is too much. Ah, he's better than this guy. That guy's a bum. That attitude in boxing that you have no that you have no regard for the other uh, for your opponent. It, it's how a fighter gets killed, and so the fight went ten rounds. The other thing that's in, clearly indicative of a brain injury is when a fighter is blinking a lot. That lets you know that the brain is bleeding, and so the fight was over. And the ringside doctor, who was a neurosurgeon, looked at him for the for the New York State Athletic Commission and said, you're fine. But he didn't give him an examination. He looked at him, you can see on the tape, for about eight seconds. You know, just didn't even use the flashlight, just went, yeah, you're fine. And they went back to his dressing room where he threw up. There was a doctor there who was just a family doctor, but he was there to help another boxer. He looked at Abdus Salamov. He looked in his eyes, flashed a flashlight. He told him to follow the finger, and he said to his his trainer, "He's got a, a brain bleed. He's he he could die. Get him to the hospital now." They called back to ringside, spoke to the doctor, and said, "We need an ambulance." The doctor said, "There's none available." There were three available. They didn't want to spend their money on them, and so they had to go outside, hail a cab to Roosevelt Hospital. The sad thing about Roosevelt Hospital, not the hospital, it's a great hospital. But that's the hospital where Benny Ked Perret died, which is another chapter in my book. So he gets there after Salomon. They have to do emergency surgery, a craniotomy, and they have to open his head, his skull to give his brain the chance for the swelling to swell full and then come back down. And they said to his wife, "You're not. he's not going to make it through the night. It's 2 a.m. He probably will live to about 5 a.m. But he made it. He survived, but he was paralyzed on his right side, and he had no vision in uh, in his, uh, I believe, his left eye. So 
this ends, and then you find out that the promoters, K2 Promotions run by the Klitschko's, uh, if they would have paid just $100 more for the fight, for $100 extra insurance, Abdus Salamov would have been covered for medical um, equipment and, and therapy and medicine for life. They wouldn't pay the extra 100. And because of that, because of that, he was covered for maybe two weeks. And so the promoters went online and said, please help us, please donate money. And fans wrote in and said, hey, why should we donate money? It's your mistake. And so lawyers for Abdus Salamov sued New York State Athletic Commission, and they kept postponing it and postponing it. And the judge kept saying to the New York State Athletic Commission to settle. And then they sued the doctors. And the problem with the doctors was that we didn't do anything wrong. But as the as Abdus Salamov's lawyers said, we have it on tape. We have you look at him for less than eight seconds. It's on tape, you on the phone saying, no, there's no ambulances available. It's all on tape. There's no lying here. And so the, the, these doctors got lawyers to defend them. The problem was the lawyers kept quitting. The lawyers would look at the case and say to the doctors, you're guilty. The only thing you can do is settle. Do you understand that? You're not going to ever practice medicine again. You're going to go to prison. If you're cooperative, the judge may have some mercy and send you to prison for less time. But if you keep firing your lawyers and saying it's not our fault, it just gets worse for you. And finally, they couldn't, you know, they had trouble getting any lawyer. And finally, they got one lawyer who said, and it settled. And they settled for a lot of money, as did the New York State Athletic Commission. It took eight years after the fight for Abdus Salamov to actually be able to talk again and for him to be able to hold one of his children. Eight years. For a hundred bucks, you know, he could have got he could have got it could have been covered. And it wasn't. The fight after that in my book is number three, chapter three, Joe Gans. We were just talking about him. And Terry McGovern. Now, because of this fight in 1900, boxing was banned in Chicago for 27 years. Uh, the last fight, the, the next fight then was the second Dempsey Tunney fight, the Battle of the Long Count. And what happened was uh, Gans had fought Frank Ern for the lightweight title. And they had clashed heads. It wasn't deliberate. And Gans had a horrible, thick, deep gash over his eye, and it kept streaming blood. And he, you know, his eye was in a lot of pain. He couldn't see. So he said, I can't see. I'm not going to continue when I can't see. And so he stopped. He said, I can't go on. And they called him a quitter. And Ern said, well, I beat him. I don't have to fight him again. The butt wasn't deliberate. And Ern was terrified of him. So Al Herford, his manager, got together with Sam Harris, Broadway producer, who was the manager of terrible Terry McGovern, and said, I need a favor. And McGovern was friends of Gans. Not all fighters were bigots back then. You know, Stanley Ketchum was friends of Jack Johnson and Sam Langford. They would go to whorehouses together. And they they made a deal. And the deal Sam Harris made with Al Herford, and Herford had to say to Gans, you, you go down, you take a dive in two or three rounds. And after you take that dive, Earn will see that you're not the fighter you once were, and he'll, he won't be afraid to fight you and you'll get your chance. And you, you'll make a good 50 grand from this fight. This is 1902 or 1900. So 50 grand, which is a lot today, was, you know, like a half million back then. So the bets were on. Herford, people thought the fight was fixed. 
Word got out. It's hard to keep it quiet if it's a fixed fight. Word got out. And after word got out, um, the betting changed where you had 95, 99% of the African-American bettors come in and bet their money on McGovern and not Gans. They had heard that there was a fix in the mix and there was. Gans was a great fighter. He was not, however, a, a, uh, an actor. He was uh, about 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, McGovern was 5'5 five, five and a half, five, six, and knocked Gans down three or four times in the first round, knocked him down several times in the second round, and then the referee stopped the fight. And of course, right after the fight stopped, Gans gets up, he's smiling, he has McGovern, they shake hands. And Gans admitted later that, yes, I threw the fight, but I was told to by my manager. And McGovern was in on the fix, as was his manager. But the only person who got in any trouble from it was Gans. Gans, Gans, you know, had to wait another three, four years to get a shot at Earn. And then he was so angry that Earn made him wait. He knocked him out in a minute and 40 seconds in Fort Erie, Ontario, to win the undisputed world lightweight title. But this was common back then. Now, Ad Wolgast, who's in the title of Arn's book, um, one of the chapters, like early chapters, I cover his fight with Mexican Joe Rivers. And this was an interesting fight. And I was, we'll touch on this again because we'll have Arn on again when we can correct the technical difficulties. Wolgast was a dirty fighter. And back then, fighters, it's hard to say that they got away with it. They, they, they got away with deliberately fouling their opponent because they knew how to do it. But a lot of times, like Will Gast had, had uh, a man named Jack Welch. And Welch was a, 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 um, a house referee for him. So Welch always sided in, in Will Gast's favor. And this is a fight, if you're a boxing fan, you may have seen uh, or read about or seen in a book called The Double Knockout, where they both went down in the 13th round. And in this fight, all through the fight, Fans were getting really upset, really angry, because Wolgast was deliberately hitting um, hitting him, Joe Rivers, in the testicles. There wasn't any doubt. He wasn't aiming for the solar plexus of the stomach. He was a two-fisted attack to his testicles through the whole fight. But Rivers was the better fighter, and he was pounding Wolgast. And Wolgast knew by the 10th, 11th, 12th round, he was going to lose the title. Because his face was a mess, he had very little left. Uh, he knocked. They, you know, they'd been knocked down before, several rounds earlier. And then, in the thirteenth round, Wolgast makes no show. You know, no no attempt to hide it. Winds up and hits him with a right hand, right under his cup. And at the same time, Rivers counters with a right hand to Wolgast's jaw, and they both go down. And Rivers goes down. Wolgast falls on top of him. And Jack Welch, the referee, what does he do? Uh, you know, in boxing, you have to get up under your own power. He grabs him. He grabs his house fighter that whose fights he refereed all of his fights. Uh, he grabs Wolgas, picks him up, and he's counting um, Rivers out. And when he gets to four, the bell rings, and the timekeeper leans over the ropes and says, "Jack!" And Jack looks. The round is over. Stop counting. And Welsh ignores him. Wolgast, or excuse me, Rivers gets up around eight, and then Wolf, uh, Welsh just says nine, 
10. And Rivers was looking around saying, I, I got up before you got to 10. The round ended at 4. And he raised his wool gassed hand. At that point, people rioted. They went to kill uh, Welsh. And he needed a huge police escort to get out alive. And so did Woolgast. Um, sadly for Woolgast, after this fight, not too many fights later, uh, at, by the age of 25, he was a vegetable. He had severe, severe, severe pugilistic dementia and lived in an asylum for until 1955. Didn't know who he was, where he was, how old he was. And when he died, one of his pallbearers, who didn't have much money, it was Mexican Trail Rivers. He said, yeah, he fought dirty. He was a dirty fighter, but he was still my friend. So there's that camaraderie that, you know, puts that lump in your throat uh, in the sport of boxing. Um, I've shown chapters of my book to various other authors. And, you know, a lot of the fights I have deal with the fact that, you know, fighter dies and was it someone's fault, was it not? Or the mob influenced the outcome of a fight. One of my favorite chapters in my book which you'll see soon is is the uh, um, I'm trying to remember Billy Graham versus Kid Gavilan. Graham Gavilan was a mob fighter, and when I say mob fighter, when anyone says that, he didn't go willingly. His manager was a uh, a guy from from Cuba who had mob ties in New York, and that's why Gavilan moved up quickly in the rankings, but also because of his ability. And Billy Graham had Irving Cohen, who also managed. Um, uh, the, uh, Rocky Graziano and Cohen, and he eventually bought Stillman's gym. And Cohen and, Gra and Graham wouldn't get in the bed of the mob. So the way the way Frankie Carbo who ran at them uh, said that. Oh, thank you, Cedric. Thank you very much. That's one of our other hosts, Cedric, a magnificent host, great person. You should watch his. You should watch his uh, podcast. So Frankie Carbo said to him. To Cohen, I'll tell you what, you sell me 50% of Billy Graham and I'll let him win tonight against Kid Gavilan, win the welterweight title. And Cohen just said, go F yourself. No. And Graham said, no, I don't want to do that because Graham knew that, you know, if you work for the mob, like Gavilan, you're getting 80 grand to fight, but you're going to get a check for 2,500. They're going to steal it all. And so Graham won the fight. It's a close fight. And Gavlin was given the decision. But what made this different was, this was one of the few, it's the early 50s, 52, 1952. This was one of those times where the fans and the media had had enough, mob or no mob. And Dan Patrick, one of the, Dan Parker, one of the most consistently brilliant sports writers, if not the most consistently brilliant sports writer, along with Bud Schobert, went out and their newspapers and in Sports Illustrated and said this fight was fixed from beginning to end by Frankie Carmo, Carbo and Blinky Palermo. Billy Graham won, but because he wouldn't get into bed with the mob and give him, you know, 90% of his purse and control of his career to them, they gave that they they fixed the judges, which they did, and gave the decision to Gavlin. Gavlin, you know, thought he was on cloud nine, but then of course. Gavlin lost it to Johnny Saxton in Philadelphia in a fight that he clearly won, but sort of Damocles was hanging over his head. The mob can give you it, but the mob can take it away as well. And Graham said years later, I didn't get the title. I won the title, but I retired with my money and my brains intact. 
and my morality. And there's precious few fighters that can say that these days or any days. And that's, you know, unfortunately, that was very true. The other fight I wanted to mention was a fight in early 1932 between Ernie Schaff and Primo Carnera. Everyone's heard of Primo Carnera. If you've seen the movie, The Heart of the Fall, Primo Carnera was a six foot six, six foot seven fighter from Italy. He was a circus strongman. There's a mistaken belief that when he got to the United States, the mob ripped him off. They did, but he was ripped off by his own family members. You know, his uncles ripped him off when when he worked for them. They didn't pay him what he was supposed to in their in their um, um, mosaic tile factory. When he worked in a circus in France as a strongman, he didn't get paid what he was supposed to get paid. He slept in a park. Finally, two Italians, Luigi Luigi Ceresi, and a Frenchman. Um, saw him, I think it was Paul Junot, and they saw him and they took advantage of him as a fighter. They set him up for fights in Europe, but the fights were fixed. They ripped him off. And then when the mob guys were coming over to Italy and France and England to look for fighters they could use in, in, in the United States, they saw Carnera and they wired back to only the killer Madden who ran boxing then. We got someone for you. And they brought him back. Madden owned him, lock, stock, and barrel. Everyone took a piece of Carnera. Every time Carnera fought in the United States, he was losing about 120% of himself to the point where he, you know, the, the IRS was hounding him. You know, he would say, I was supposed to be paid 100 grand for the fight. Now you're saying I owe you 140 grand in taxes, but I didn't even make that in my gross earnings for the fight. And this is because of all the expenses they added on, which were disallowed. And Madden sold pieces of Carnera to other people. So Carnera fought a guy named Ernie Schaff. Ernie Schaff was known as the sailor. He, he, he was a protege of Jack Sharkey, the world heavyweight champ. Sharkey threw his fight against Carnera. He beat him the first time, second time he went down. He denied it for years until a couple months before he died. And he said, everyone that was involved in is gone. I was told to lose to Carnera or I wouldn't see my wife and kids again. And Essentially, he said, what the mob does is they don't put a gun at in, in your face, although they did sometimes. They just come to you in your training camp, and they lay out photographs of your wife and your children. He said, my sons, and showed, here's your wife at work. Here's your wife at home. Here's your wife on the streetcar. Here's your son at school. Here's your son at recess. Here's your other son at school having lunch. All these photographs, meaning we can get to you anytime you want. So he went down against Carnera. Carnera's the champion, and Carnera fights Ernie Schaff. Schaff went into the fight. He was a very good fighter, very strong guy, but he was ill. He was very, very sick. He thought he had the flu, which he did originally, and then pneumonia, but it developed into spinal meningitis. Unfortunately, back then, the doctors did a thorough workup on him, but you couldn't detect spinal meningitis until after someone had died. It had to be detected only post-mortem. They didn't have the tools we have today to be able to do that. So they have a fight. And fans are booing and because Carnera doesn't hit hard enough to bust an egg. And he's barely tapping Schaff. And Schaff's just standing there in slow motion moving. He's got a temperature probably of 103, 104, if not higher. And in the 13th round, Carnera hits him with a glancing jab just off his head. And Schaff goes down on his face, on his side, then on his face. And he doesn't move. He's out. And fans are throwing warm cups of urine at him. They're pelting him with bottles. They're calling him a loser. But he was seriously ill. And they take him to a hospital. 
and he dies a couple of days later. And when they did the autopsy, because people at the time thought Max Baer killed him. Max Baer didn't kill him. And this was one of the things that led to Max Baer having an early heart attack, I believe, at the age of 50 and dying. Um, they said, you know, Baer gave him such punishment that it killed him. But Bear fought in four fights earlier. And the neurosurgeon I spoke to here in Toronto at my hospital that I had gone to said that you couldn't fight a guy and, and, and get catastrophic brain injuries and then fight four more times. It's just not humanly possible. Bear, Shaft won the first fight. The second fight, Bear just, Bear gave him a beating in both fights. But Shaft continued to fight. And it was found in the autopsy that spinal meningitis is what killed him. And of course, they said there was no, there was no, when they looked at the brain, there was no evidence of any damage or, or prior brain bleed due to boxing. And the neurosurgeon I spoke with him outside my hospital said, of course not. The brain is swollen like a watermelon. You would have had to wait a long time for the swelling to go completely down before you could do a full professional examination of the brain. But the public and the and the New York State Athletic Commission didn't want to wait for that. And so people built it up in boxing as that Carnaro's the big man killer. And then he fought Bear, who easily destroyed him. Bear had killed a man in the ring um, named Frankie Campbell, whose real name was Frank Camilli. He was the brother of Brooklyn Dodgers' Dolph Camilli. And Bear supported Camilli's wife and children to the end of his life because of that. He thought it was his responsibility and he felt terrible about Ernie Schaaf. And reporters, Jimmy Cannon and others, Grandma Rice blamed him, but it wasn't Bear's fault for the death of Ernie Schaaf. And nor was it the fault of the doctors. There was no way they could have detected that. They did everything they could. He just, it was one of those unfortunate incidents where, you know, if were intelligent should have prevailed and someone should have said to him, you know, you got a high fever, you're throwing up, you're dehydrated, you should not be fighting. But back then, it's a depression and you sucked it up and he was probably getting, you know, 50, 60, 70 grand. So that's a payday that a poor guy from a poor family cannot afford to turn down. Um, later on, I talk about the fight between one of, the, probably the most controversial fight next to Dempsey Tunney. Um, uh, Benny Kid Pratt and Emil Griffith, they fought three times in the first fight Griffith knocked out Perrette to win the World Welterweight title. Perrette had won it from Don Jordan. Second fight, Griffith was way ahead, but he fell asleep. He took his foot off the pedal, and Perrette came back. Third fight, Perrette died. And one of the problems in this fight, it was a well-known secret in boxing that Emil Griffith was gay. He was a homosexual, but it was a well-kept secret. No one spoke about it. They knew about it but you just didn't mention it. And before the second fight, he called, uh, Perrette called him, Griffith, a maticon. And American is, M-A-R-I-C-O-N, is Spanish for faggot. And that enraged Griffith, who wanted to kill him right there. I don't mean kill him, but beat him up. And his trainer, Gil Clancy, prevented that. But he kept doing it. And Clancy and his team kept telling Pratt's team, lay off. And Pratt's team kept doing it as well. And Pratt wins that fight. And it was a no-no to say that. Because if you say that, you know, 
it destroys the press for the fight. And the press wasn't allowed to mention it. And one of the guys, Pete Hamill, who I got a chance to meet years ago, one of the all-time great writers, uh, said that in his newspaper column, he, he wrote it. He said he called Mill Griffith a homosexual, which is well known within the boxing community, and changed it, his editor changed it to, he called him an unman. And Hamill went in and physically attacked his editor. He said, what are you doing? And he said, well, you can't say homosexual. Why not? To say he's an unman. He said, well, what's an unman? A toaster is an unman. A pillowcase is an unman. Give the man his credit. Give him his due. He's a human being. It's a sexual preference. It's his right under the Constitution. And we get to this third fight. Now, before the third fight, when a fighter dies in the ring, it's usually from an accumulation of blows from previous fights. But before he fought Griffiths the third time, Perrette had fought Gene Fulmer, middleweight champ. And Fulmer, Fulmer was just an animal. You know, he was a middleweight to punch like a heavyweight, and he beat the hell out of Pret every round. He dropped them four or five times. They stopped it in the sixth round, but Pret wasn't okay after the fight. He had ear bleeds. He had nose bleeds. He had nonstop headaches. His vision wasn't good. Pret was illiterate, so he was at the mercy of his trainer, his manager, and the mob. And he had been signed to fight by his criminal manager, Manuel Alfaro, to fight Griffith the third time. My mentor, Angelo Dundee, said to him, what, are you crazy? He's retired. He's done. He can't fight. His coordination's gone. His timing is gone. He's got nothing. You put him in there. Why not just put a gun to his head and shoot him? You'd be doing him a favor. And Alfaro said to Angelo, if he dies, we'll go back to Cuba and get another boy. And after the fight, or many years later after the fight, his widow said, you know, what was he going to do? What, what, what was Perec going to do? He couldn't read or write in, in Spanish or English. And if he'd survived, his widow said he probably would have fought again. That's all he knew how to do. He was a young guy. And she said what she didn't know was that she could read. She'd read the contract and say, you're getting 40 grand for this. Right. But, you know, a week a week later, after you got the money, you said you were broke. How, but, but, of course, if you're literate, you can't count. So... His manager would just take the money, or the mob would take the money. So he was fighting for nothing. They kept him fighting for nothing. And in the third fight, at the weigh-in, he called him American again, but he did something worse. You know, when fighters are weighing in, they strip down to their underwear. Well, Griffiths is there. He's on He's on the scale. And unbeknownst to him, also in his underwear, Perrette climbs in behind him and, and pretends to sodomize him. He's, he simulates that. And Griffith turns around and grabs him by the throat and says, tonight you die. Tonight, tonight you're going to pay for that with your life. Now, Griffith didn't mean that. He said it in anger. We've all said to somebody, you do that again, I will kill you. And that's the way he meant it. He didn't really want to end his life. They'd been friends on the streets of New York. And Griffith was just beyond angry. And, and Gil Clancy, who was like a father to him, had to bear hug him. And Howie Albert, his other manager, had to take him back to the dressing room. So they get to the ring. And when they get to the fight, uh, it's a typical Perrette-Griffith fight. Griffith does well first four or five rounds, and then he goes to sleep. For some reason, we don't know why, fighters often lose concentration in a fight. I mean, when I did stand-up, it happened to me too, where 
I would be doing well on stage. And I just, I would sort of daydream in the back of my head, what am I going to do later on after the show while I'm still talking to the audience? So Pratt comes on for the next five, you know, six rounds, seven, eight, ninth round. And he drops him, I think, at the end of like the eighth or ninth round. He drops Griffith. And Griffith gets back to the corner. He's on his stool. And Clancy just slaps him and then grabs him and says, listen, this is it. This is the world welterweight title. You lose this, goodbye. This is the third fight. That means he old beating you two out of three. He doesn't have to give you a fourth one. You understand that? Smarten up. Get in there and beat him. Take these fists and keep punching him till he goes down. You understand? And he comes out and he turns it on and he's pounding Pret and he's pounding Pret and Pret now is fatigued and Pret's got a problem. He's a young man in an old man's body. Too many fights, too many times. And the beating he had suffered from Fulmer was only three and a half months earlier. I mean, it wasn't a long enough rest. It should have been a year. Right before the fight, he'd had nosebleeds and he, he'd had ear bleeds and he complained that his head was hurt hurting and he wanted to go see a neurosurgeon but his trainer or his manager wouldn't let him he said if the word got out the fight would be the fight would be canceled so you got to go through with it and he, his wife said cancel if you're not feeling well you don't want to lose your life and he said no Manuel said i can't cancel there's too much money at stake he got about 45 grand for the fight which he put in his locker and it disappeared after the fight of course and 13th round he got him into a corner he hit him a a couple lefts and then a right hand, a left and, and a straight right hand, and Pret's hands just went down. He was out. And then Griffith landed about 28 consecutive shots, 26 to 28. And Pret was caught on the ropes. And referee Ruby Goldstein said that for the first time in his career, he froze like a statue. Like he, he could see what was happening, and he was like, I got to get there and stop this, but my body won't move. He just, he froze. And finally, he's able to get himself unfrozen. He stops the fight. And Griffith, as you can see, and you see the photo in my book, just slides down to the canvas, almost into his grave, goes to Roosevelt Hospital, and they do an operation, but he dies 10 days later. And... And Pratt dies 10 days later. And Griffith was absolutely crushed emotionally because he genuinely liked Pratt, even though Pratt had been incredibly rude to him. I, I give a lot more background and fill it in, in in the book. But it's unfortunate that, you know, it's sad that that happened. And uh, it shouldn't have happened. And um, Ruby Goldstein was going to go visit Pratt in the hospital, but his son said, I wouldn't do that, Dad. Right now, you're not the most popular person in New York. A lot of people blame you. And the real, I mean, he was also a victim. And so was Griffith in a way, because he never emotionally recovered from it. He fought on. But the thing about uh, Pratt was the trainer could have stopped it. You know, the manager, Al Farrell, could have stopped it earlier when he was taking a beating. But he didn't. He could have stopped and prevented the fight from happening at all, but he didn't. And that's just one of those things in boxing. The sad thing is a year later, um, Sugar Ramus beats up Davey Moore, the Springfield rifle, for the featherweight title. And Sugar Ramus was a fighter with Angelo Dundee, and this is also in my book. And Moore's balance was off. And Moore, being a featherweight, didn't get paid much. 
you know, he was the world champion. He won it from Hogan Kid Bassey, the first native Nigerian to ever win a world title. But but he had to fight often at lighter weights to make good money. And so he was fighting too much. And in this fight, after the second and third round, the referee George Lockout thought to himself, Davy Moore's balance is not there. His feet aren't correct. And he's really getting hammered. But Davy Moore could punch. And they were Sugar Ramos was a great fighter, slick fighter, good puncher, great counter puncher. And this fight went for about 10 rounds. Uh, at the end of the 10th round, Ramos dropped him. And there were only three ropes, not four. And Moore went down and caught the bottom rope with his neck, which which um, severed part of his spinal cord. And it just a matter of how long it would take to swell. And he got up, the corner stopped the fight, and then he, he gave an interview on TV. He said, I'm fine. And he went to the dressing room, and he was talking to the press. And he said, well, I, you know, it was one of those fights where, oh, my head. It feels like it's going to. And then he was gone. Died right there. Just collapsed. And after that, boxing put in a fourth rope. Um, but they still, to this day, haven't visited the problem of fighting too often and too short a time span. So my book, I have 25 controversial fights. We'll probably split it up and do two, two different books. But some of the fights are controversial because of decisions, some are because of mob control, and some are because of the outcome. But what I do in my book is I hold the people responsible in all cases uh, and name their names. So when you look at the Lennox Lewis fight with Vander Holyfield, the first fight, Lewis, Lennox, now I have to say it's a disclaimer. I work for Lennox, and I love Lennox. He's a gentleman's gentleman, and I think the best heavyweight since Ali. But he beat Hollyfield. And there was a round, seventh or eighth round, where Hollyfield didn't land a punch. But the judge, Eugenia Williams, gave the round to Hollyfield. And she complained she had an obstructive viewpoint. And she did. The British judge also scored to fight a draw. And I think he's as much to blame as Eugenia Williams. Eugenia Williams got blamed because she'd had poor decisions rendered before on her behalf, but also because before the fight, uh, she she lost her job, showed a lot of money, and she lost her house. But because Don King promoted it, and a promoter pays for the judges' travel to the fight and food and stuff like that, but Don King paid for her house, so now she owned it outright, paid all her debts, so she was out of hock, and she, and she was financially solvent now. And he was promoting Holyfield. That's a conflict of interest. It's a common one in boxing. But, you know, as Jimmy Cannon said, boxing is the red light district of sports. And it certainly is. So in those fights, um, uh, you know, you could see that Lewis landed over 220 more punches, won the fight. But it was called the split draw. One guy had it for Lewis. Uh, Stanley Christodoulou from South Africa, but the British judge had it a draw, and Eugenia Williams scored it for Holyfield, which was ridiculous. Now, here's the funny thing. A, a, a newspaper in uh, The Guardian in, in England said that the, said, came out and just said, listen, Eugenia Williams was paid off, and she she was paid off by Don King to square a fight for Holyfield. And he sued her. Oh, she sued the paper, and she won. 
even though there's evidence to prove these assertions. However, a friend of mine from Britain sent me an email and he said, because I sent him the chapter to see what he thought. And he said, it doesn't matter that she went in court. He said, you have to understand something. In 1958, a newspaper in Britain said that Liberace was a flaming homosexual and had orgies with young boys. He sued the paper and won. So he said, it's more of a comment on the British system of jurisprudence than it actually is on the truth in and of itself. So I cover a range of fights like that uh, in my fight, Joe Lewis versus Jer Jersey Joe Walcott. Um, the first fight where Walcott won, but it was given to Joe Lewis. I covered the fight and I got to know Dave Tiberi very well. Dave Tiberi's fight against James T Lights Out Toady and, and they gave Tony the decision, but the FBI the Senate subcommittee investigating organized crime and boxing, which was started in the 50s, but still exists today and does work, said that that was a, a the IBF who ran that fight was, is a, uh, a criminal organization and that the outcome was predetermined. And so I covered that fight as well. And uh, I mean, it's a lot of fights that I cover in the book. So uh, there's 25 chapters, as I said, I may make it into uh, you know, several other chapters, several or several other books, two books, but uh, we'll see. Tell me what you think. And this week, as I said, I uh, let go of one publisher who was terrible, but uh, I've had offers from others this week through friends, so I'm lucky and hopefully we'll get that done uh, as soon as possible. We're going to be back uh, in the following weeks. We're going to have Murray Gregg. Uh, we're going to have Arne Lang, Arnie Lang on again. And because I still have a lot of questions for him, Murray Gregg, who wrote the book on George Shabalo and, and the great book on going the distance about Canadian boxing history. And the great Jerry Eisenberg, one of my heroes, who wrote Once There Were Giants about the heavyweights from the 70s and the 60s. And he knew Ali really well. And um, when I met him during the filming of Cinderella Man, he said, you know, son, Angelo loosened the ropes in Zaire against Foreman. I said, no, he didn't. He's trying to tighten them. And he looked at me and he said, Lewis, I was sitting five feet from him. Where were you uh, in Toronto? Yeah, so I think I might know a bit more about that. And I, ju I just smiled. So he's a wonderful uh, writer and trying to get uh, Springs Toledo on as well uh, about Black Murderer's Row and Tris Dixon who wrote Damage. And of course, still talking with um, Thomas Hauser, Muhammad Ali's official biographer. So we have lots of great guests coming up in the next few months. Uh, I'm sorry about today's technical difficulties. I have them myself and Arnie says he, you know, Arnie felt bad too, as you can see, but we'll have Arnie back on and his knowledge of this era is just absolutely uh, incredible. And there are authors that I would like to have on again, such as Christian Judaday, who, who we had on last week, Alexis Arguello, but his book on Wilfredo Gomez is so wonderful as his book on Duran. I want to have my friend Christopher LaForce on together when he gets his book uh, done on Tommy Ryan, the great middleweight champ. And there are so many authors who have written so many great books, but we will do our best here at Ring Talk and Talk and Fight to get them all in on the show and give you, the viewers, a chance to uh, help pick their brains about these fights and these fighters and what inspired them and how these fighters still inspire people all over the world today. I want to thank you for watching. I'm Lou Eisen. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Ring Talk. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.